I mean, overall, we need to transform our food system. Um, our food system is showing us that it, it is not resilient and, and this is, it's, it's, it's being impacted by these major drivers um, that are happening around the world. Today on Dirty Linen, we are continuing to talk about sustainability in the food space, in hospitality. Our guest today is Paul Newnham. Paul works with UN and with a group called Chef's Manifesto, which works around the concept of good food for all. Uh, Paul, it is fantastic to have you on Dirty Linen. Uh, welcome and yeah, tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you do. Yeah, thanks Danny. It's so great to be with you um, today and to um, be on uh, talking today. Um, so I work with uh, at the global level. Um, so I'm based out of Melbourne, but work at the global level with um, chefs around the world. Uh, in sustainability and so essentially helping to uh, support a network of chefs that are advocating and working uh, from their restaurants from their kitchens um, in different parts of the world around the united nations sustainable development goals um, which i'll tell you a bit more about in a minute um, but we essentially are helping to try and uh, drive forward this idea of good food for all um, and look at that and look at the kind of concept of what is good food and, and how we do that. I kind of got into this. Um, I've always had a love for food. Um, I've always loved cooking and I also love getting my hands dirty in the garden. And, uh, and so there's always been that kind of connection. But I initially started working um, for an organization, World Vision. We worked in kind of uh, poverty alleviation. I was involved in the 40-hour famine, which some people may know about, um, running that at the, the state level and then at the national level. And so it was really about trying to help support um, food security and humanitarian work around the world. And it was as I continued to do that and, you know, work with friends who were uh, in the food space as well, who would often come and try and support the work that we're doing. And they would they would talk about um, hunger and things like that. And because they were, you know, chefs working in food, what they would find is on their platforms that often they would lose followers when they started talking about hunger because people came to their platforms to celebrate really good food. And that was really interesting because we started to kind of think about why do people engage and what do they engage in? And that sort of led me down a path to start working with, with chefs on, on understanding how do you um, create programs and how do you engage people in some of these causes and communicate in such a way. And so um, I went from working at World Vision to um, in Australia to the global team and then ended up at the UN World Food Program and then got asked to set up this advocacy network um, around sustainable development goals. And that kind of led me into this, um, this chef network as well. So if I try to synthesize it, is it about starting different kinds of conversations or ways of talking about food and, and food security that also encompasses the idea of, you know, deliciousness and abundance and, you know, all the things that we love about food. Yeah, 100%. So we, we, we basically decided to kind of flip the narrative somewhat and talk about the positive in food and talk about the fact that everyone on this planet should have access to good food. 
And so we've now moved that into this kind of campaign around Good Food for All, which talks about the idea of food being good, good for people, good for planet, um, you know, good memories, good. There's Good is such an uh, open descriptor. Um, and some people sort of, you know, ask questions about that. But then when you think about it, you start to go, oh, okay, yeah, food can do things that are good or can also do things that are bad. But let's talk about the good. And then let's talk about equity and talk about for all um, because I can't truly enjoy a meal if I know somebody else doesn't have it. And, you know, we, we all kind of have had those kinds of experiences um, where you kind of can connect to others and, and that somehow changes your reaction or your experience of, of what's going on. But yeah, those conversations are so, or the way those conversations are had is so critically important to creating, I suppose, empathy and action. It makes me think of that classic thing of, you know, a kid's not eating their dinner and you say, think of the starving children in Africa. And it's like, that is, I mean, I suppose, like, of course, yes. Uh, but on the other hand, that's, a, it's a very disconnected way to start to think about, you know, eating your own dinner, but also, um, yeah, food security. Yeah, and, and and I think you know we've we've attempted to try. I mean, at the heart of that question is trying to kind of help give people perspective, and I think perspective is so critical in our food system, and for all of us to understand where we sit and and what how lucky we are if we get to enjoy you know beautiful seasonal food every day. Um, versus some parts of the world where we don't. And, and I think getting that perspective is really, really key. But I think we also have to be really careful in those perspectives because they can also set up kind of um, preconceptions about things. And, you know, I've talked to friends in Africa who say, stop talking about Africa as, you know, needing food. That's one narrative. The other is this is where all these amazing ingredients come from, all this amazing food. And so you, you kind of get into these discussions when you spin around a conversation. And I think it's so key. Mm, love that. So I know that people in your working in your space um, rattle off SDGs, Sustainable Development Goals, but I feel like there isn't actually that much awareness out there about what these Sustainable Development Goals are. So can you just tell us a little bit about them? Yeah, no, my, my kids often mispronounce uh, that acronym and it, it becomes a very different conversation, um, as you could only imagine. But um, SDGs or the Sustainable Development Goals or the Global Goals is essentially a plan that the international community has set to address um, the interlinked challenges from poverty to hunger to gender equity uh, to a peaceful world. And so this was adopted in 2015 by all the UN member states. So that's all the countries in the world, um, essentially. And, and, and basically it's an agenda for shared, it's a, like a shared blueprint for peace and prosperity for people and planet. And at the heart of this is these 17 goals. And, and 17 sounds like a lot, but um, when you actually think about the fact that this is all about interlinked, connected um, issues, it, it actually makes sense and under them are measurements and everything, but it helps us to kind of, as a global community at the global level, to think about these big challenges and then also provide a call to action for countries to really take into account those linkages and move forward the agenda. So how, I mean, I know they're interlinked, but can you sort of tease out some of the SDGs in relation to food? 
Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, food systems, and if you think about food as part of a system, uh, food touches all parts of our lives. Um, And so food is essential for us to thrive, to be able to to grow for life. Um, And so in, in many ways, food touches all of the goals, you know, whether that be education and thinking about the fact that if you don't have the right nutrition or the right Um, food, you can't concentrate in school, you can't thrive, to gender equity where you talk about um, ownership of farmland and stuff and the the imbalances that go on there, you know, with women doing a huge amount of the work in in many smallholder farms, yet not necessarily owning the land. And there's lots of interesting, you know, climate, cities, there's so many elements here. But one of the goals particularly kind of often is the one that everyone jumps to when they think about um, food is is SDG 2 or, or goal 2. And that tagline is zero hunger, but it's more than just about ending hunger. It's also about um, nutrition and so looking at the, the, the positive and negative nutrition and so over-nutrition, under-nutrition and all the other forms of malnutrition. It looks at farmer livelihoods. Um, and ensuring that farmers are, are uh, getting, you know, productivity and also um, the right pay. And then also it looks at um, climate impacts and it also looks at biodiversity. And so if you look at those things, you can't just end hunger without addressing all of those elements. And so it acknowledges the the the, 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 the spread of those kind of issues. And so I think this is, you know, really key when you think about the goals is to think about and unpack some of um, what's below them. But they, they do provide a really cool framework to think about um, what we need to do globally. So what are some of the world's huge challenges now in terms of food systems? Yeah, I mean, that's a... A big question and one that you could talk about for an awfully long time, but um, let me try and, especially at the moment, I mean, we we came into um, 2022 uh, with three big C's, as I would say. So COVID, climate and conflict. Um, and these have been shown globally to be major impacts on our food system. Um, because if you if you think about each of them, COVID for the last three years, we've seen global rates of hunger and malnutrition be on the rise, and, and in the shadow of the pandemic, that's increased. Um, we now have between 720 and 811 million people facing hunger in 2020, according to the, the key kind of SOFIE report, which is the big report that comes out. Um, and it always looks back, you know, 2020 seems like a long time ago, but you can't you can't give figures for the future. So we always have to look at where the trend's going. Um, healthy diets have been out of reach for about 3 billion people. Um, and, and, and that's really had, you know, become come to the front in, in the response to COVID in terms of thinking about people's immunities, thinking about how people are, are dealing with um, some of the challenges. At, at the moment, the uh, climate challenge and we see that all across Australia. We see that all around the world. And conflict is the, the third because when you, whenever there's a conflict in the world, what you do is you, you find that it, there's a disruption, a disruption to the ability for people to obviously grow food because people tend to migrate even within countries or outside of countries to avoid that conflict. You then also see supply chains interrupted. 
Um, and, and, and that then creates obviously food insecurity um, challenges. There's also in many parts of the world, food is used as a weapon. Um, and so it's either held back or it's um, given to particular sides. So there's lots of complexity when it comes to conflict as well. And this was all before the beginning of this year when now we've also stepped into 2022 and we all are very aware of the situation in Ukraine. And so this has already, you know, impacted this, these unprecedented challenges of those three C's by adding another really big impact. And what we've seen from Ukraine and Russia is this addition of a fourth C, which is uh, cost. Um, and cost had already been playing a big role where the food prices were going up. But what we've found is that um, it's really driven because Russia and Ukraine are amongst the world's most important producers of agricultural commodities, things like wheat, maize, rapeseed, sunflower seeds and sunflower oil. And also both countries play such a major role in global markets um, around fertilizers and the components for fertilizers. Um, this has a major impact and there's particularly certain countries that this is having a major impact who get a huge amount of their imports um, from uh, this area. And so that's particularly in parts of Africa and the Middle East. And so any, like the immediate reaction of the war meant that, you know, supply chains were shut down. Um, but equally, there's also the, almost the lag factor, which is the disruption of the harvests in Ukraine. Um, most of uh, the agricultural land is, is struggling, is either under conflict situation um, or, you know, fuel has been uh, diverted into the war effort. Um, farmers have, have been diverted into the war effort. And so the ability to even plant the next season is also um, at this time of year is, is looking very challenging. And at the same time, fertilizer, uh, which is key for many of these commodity, big commodity crops at the global level, is also, you know, in, in uh, short demand. I heard uh, from somebody, a friend of mine who works in this space, who said that since the war had started, not one ship um, with fertilizer had hit the continent of Africa. Um, and, and when you think about the continent is, you know, so many countries, so many people that whether we agree or disagree in the use of fertilizer have used fertilizer and, and fertilizer has been a, a key component of agricultural systems in not getting that pushes prices up. Then it makes it un, you know, people have to make the choices. Do you plant without or with and then we're also seeing a number of other early warning signs around weather, um, around sea temperatures rising in certain areas, which is an indicator of rainfall um, and other things like this. And so there's this kind of, you know, additional layer to these unprecedented seas, which is cost. And I was trying to kind of sometimes when you think about cost, you go, yeah, I walked into the supermarket and, and it seemed very expensive or down to my grocer or my and things have kind of jumped in price. And we've all seen that in, across Australia in the, in the in the fuel costs, in, you know, uh, basic, basic ingredients. But what that means in some parts of the world is 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 quite different. So uh, somebody was talking to me about South Sudan and South Sudan at the moment things like a loaf of bread because of the wheat price has doubled. So it's not just gone up, it's completely doubled. And if you look at incomes and disposable income for food, it was already incredibly high. And so that doubling means people can't access it. It just takes it out. 
And so this is a major impact at the moment. And so we're looking at, you know, a potential wave of collateral hunger spreading across the globe as a direct consequence to this war in Ukraine, um, particularly in certain hunger hotspots. I mean, this is so huge. It makes me think about a million different things at once. Uh, One of them is, you know, that we're so vulnerable because of globalisation, food systems that are local can be more resilient, though, of course, when there are local disasters, you know, that's that's definitely not the case. I mean, what kinds of, I don't even know what the questions are, like what kinds of questions or responses or solutions do you move to? Yeah, I mean, look, it is a little bit at times overwhelming. And and we've been in, I've been in, you know, the community is trying to understand first what's going on. What can we learn from the 2008 food crisis, which was the last time we had a major food crisis in the world? And we're already beyond that. Um, And so what, what do you do? Um, and what are the areas to work? And so um, looking at this from a, a, you know, you have to look at it at different levels. You have to look at it at the global level um, and, 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 and look at what are the mechanisms to drive change. And so these are the multilateral organizations. This is like World Banks, um, some of the big multilateral, you know, lending institutions which deal with finance, which then enables countries to address different issues in their budgets. Um, and then also, you know, groups that are big funders, US, EU, um, other other groups, and look at how do they, how can they help and support different shifts. You then need to get down to the country level, and you need to go, well, what can countries do? And and then you can go down to the individual level and everything. I mean, overall, we need to transform our food system. Um, our food system is showing us that it it is not resilient. And, and this is it's 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 being impacted by these major drivers um, that are happening around the world of kind of focused into key commodities which don't necessarily show diversity in diets that then impact health. Um, it's not affordable or sustainable or inclusive. And so we've we've basically, I think these past few years are showing us what the potential future is if we don't move in a completely different way um, around this. And so, I mean, I always like to start to say that starts with every single one of us. You know, we all have a role to play in kind of driving forward um, the sustainable development goals and, and, and really good food for all through the choices we make. Um, and that's, that's, that's really important. And that can be through how we support our localised food system, how we eat more diverse, you know, ingredients, how we, you know, think about alternatives. Um, I then go, you know, we obviously work with chefs. And so we say, well, how, how do we, you know, chefs play a role and, and chefs bridge this gap between farm and fork. Um, they're directly working where the story of our food begins, which is with farmers and then along that value chain to our plate. Um, and so I think, you know, it's how do they um, think about, using the lens of taste, flavor, connection, culture, love to show us different ways of eating, show us different ingredients. I was at an event just uh, the other night with, um, with uh, Douglas McMaster and, you know, obviously Douglas has been a big uh, driver around waste and, you know, right out there showing and thinking and reimagining how do you use different ingredients. 
There's others that have been really driving different ingredients, you know, different ingredients, alternates like millets and, you know, all kinds of other things that you can utilize in, in your, your diet. Um, and I think there's a lot of science which tells us the things we should be eating more of and the things that we should be eating less of if we want to have an impact on the planet and on human health. And I think chefs can play this role in helping shift that. Um, and so I think that's really key. And that, that's where and why the Chef's Manifesto existed is because it creates these kind of thematic areas which create like a framework for people to think about the work they're already doing around biodiversity, around livelihoods, about seasonality, about plant-based ingredients and different things. And then using that to help drive forward some of that change. And, and, and through sort of profiling chefs' work around the world, what that does is it, it helps to give inspiration to people and it helps them to think about that. But at the global at the global level, you know, I think there's some interesting things. I was reading an article in the Times recently from uh, that had uh, one of the authors is Agnes Calabata, who's led the UN Food System Summit uh, last year, and she talks about, you know, the fact that we need to keep trade open because what happens is in this global situation is people get protectionists about their own so like australia has a lot of wheat so it kind of closes down the borders and says we're going to keep our wheat and stockpiles it and then that makes it worse on the global you know and so we've got to kind of have this concept of there is enough food in the world to feed everyone which there is even in this situation it's just not in all the right places. So how do we move that around? How do governments, and we ask governments to think about this in the way that they support, you know, everyone um, getting access. We need to think about production. How do we, um, in the most appropriate way, in the most sustainably what, sustainable way, think about the food shortages that are coming and, and, and increase production through using innovation, through technology, those kinds of things in local areas and then getting that into the supply chain. Um, the other thing that people often uh, talk about is data. And it, it, it's something that my brain doesn't go straight to, but it's about information. And um, it's about having information about where food is and where food isn't and where it needs to be. And so how do you think about that? Um, a lot of what gets talked about is safety nets. So this is about like um, helping to provide food for people that don't have it. So, you know, humanitarian relief, this kind of thing. And that's really important, um, but it's not the only thing. And then I think, you know, it's we have to think about our biodiversity loss, biodiversity loss, you know, less reliance on fertilizers and pesticides, which are environmentally damaging, more circular, regenerative, wasteless and, and structure around delivering healthy diets. And I think, you know, thinking about that in our, in our agriculture is absolutely critical as well. Wow. Well, again, so much in what you've said. And um, just, yeah, for people who don't know about Dougie McMaster and the work he's done. So he's um, worked at a restaurant called Silo in the UK, uh, pre previously worked with um, Yoast Backer here in Australia on a no-waste restaurant, Silo. Um, so, yeah, certainly someone who's, you know, a change maker and inspiring. And, and um, I suppose, you know, as you said at the very beginning, Paul, probably someone who would also be the first to admit that he's, you know, he hasn't done everything right from the beginning or not, not even right. It's just like, you need to work out what doesn't work to work out what does. Um, but so dogged, I suppose, in just continuing with that work, which is both 
a, 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 it does it is actual change, but it's also a showcase of what can be possible when you think about, um, yeah, when you just don't let yourself off the hook in terms of thinking about waste and and being as sustainable as possible. Is that do you think that's a fair <laughs> a fair description? Hundred percent. And I was I was listening to him and Yost and and Matt actually talk um, down at Fed Square the other day, and I was like thinking about it and I was like this is this is absolutely amazing the work that you're doing and what you're doing is you're stretching our imagination and so I think there's a lot of chefs out there that are stretching people's imagination and what they do is they're they're out in front almost helping us to see what could be possible and then you know it's about how do we pull ourselves forward and and when people say what should I do you know like you often get people say, tell us one thing we should do or tell us what should we do? And you go, well, you know, the world is a complex place. Um, no matter where you're located, if you're in the city, if you're in the suburbs, if you're in the country, what you should do is probably very different because you need to look at what your local system is. You need to look at where you are. You need to think about the farmers, the space, the, you know, the, the challenges. And, and then you need to adapt. And, and it's not about finding one thing, but it's about doing something. And I think this is really key. And so when I think about chefs around the world that are involved in our network and, and in different ways, what we see is, is thousands upon thousands of somethings that people are doing, like what Dougie's doing, that is taking, stretching, growing, moving the food system in the direction that we need. Now, do we need to move faster? Absolutely. And that's where I think we need people to inspire us. Like you, you know, another in, in Ukraine thinking about what Jose Andreas and the, the team at World Central Kitchen's doing, you know, they've been serving nearly 200,000 meals a day and on the ground supporting families in the Ukraine. If you don't follow World Central Kitchen, have a look and see and just kind of I suppose, understand the complexity of what they're doing there, working with refugees and, and communities, working with restaurants in Poland, Romania, Moldova and Hungary, you know, and, and bringing in chefs to, to work there. That's like one response. Um, there's others that are thinking about biodiverse, native, resilient ingredients to take the pressure off our current system, you know, how we get some of the 30,000 edible plants in our, in our world into um, our, onto our plates and start thinking differently about how and what is food. Mm. All incredibly important. And not everyone can do everything. And I think we, but we can all do something. So I always kind of think about that. And even in the Chef's Manifesto, the action plan we have has eight areas and it's, you can do all eight, but I, there's also chefs that are like leaning into one and really doing it well. And, and, and for me, that was something I learned a long time ago is that there's no like universal, simple thing that everyone has to do. There's lots of things we can, we all, we all have to do. And, and it's about how we, when they all stack up together, those actions shift a system um, and understanding that we can't, we, we often don't do it all but that's not a reason not to do something. Well, it's almost like that idea of, you know, we don't want monocultures, it ingredients and, you know, we don't, nor do we want them in action. Like we need that sort of diversity and people coming at it from all different angles. It really, it really makes me think of a plate of food and it's like I don't just want to see, you know, one, one um, type of rice on it. I want to see 
I, I want to see some crazy vegetables and some and some seeds and I want to see yeah a little bit of protein in some form it's just like everyone can I guess add their own little ingredient to this to this plate and um it all adds up to something Absolutely. I love that. I love that vision. And, and I think, you know, often when you come through these conversations, the more you come back to those ideas of like the elements of a kitchen of cooking and you think about recipes, you think about ingredients, like, and these, these spaces help us visualize, I think the reality of, of the approach that we need and how we do that. And, and I think, you know, that helps people get started and, and, and in the work that we've done, it's really sometimes just about giving language to what people are doing, helps them to feel then, uh, uh, empowered to do more. And, and, and I think that's key as well is that we're, we're constantly pulled towards improving, learning, doing more and not settling with the, the system in the way that it is, you know, it, it does feel overwhelming, but then my response to that is, well, then do something. Um, get out there, learn something about the system, ask some questions, think about how your practices, you know, question everything. And, you know, Dougie, Dougie talks a lot about um, questioning everything, you know, and, and spinning around those questions. And I just, I, 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 I think that's so critical in our food system is not to just settle Paul, can you tell us about someone who's um, part of the Chef's Manifesto that's, I don't know, something that's really inspired you? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's so many stories of inspiration um, out there, uh, you know, from chefs who have really kind of leaned in and thought about different issues and then really applied it. I mean, a, a couple of quick examples Um we have uh, a range of different partners in India and they've, one of them has been very particular about promoting millets. Um, her name's Anayata Dondi um, and she is uh, a young chef, um, classically trained, uh, works in uh, Farsi food and she has really championed millets mainly because of the nutritional benefits, because of um, the fact that they use less water and so really through her platforms really bought millets out into um, uh, the, the mainstream, made them more attractive, more uh, seen in, in India. Many, many people feel like millets are, are food for people who, you know, they're poor food or they're, 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 they're food that you eat when you can't afford rice. Um, and so championing ingredients like that to me is absolutely critical. Um, another chef, Connor Spacey, who is a great friend of mine from Ireland, um, he is involved in corporate catering. And many people think about corporate catering and they think it's, it's one of the, the least sustainable or more challenging. But Connor is, um, they're running, you know, a massive operation of corporate catering, but he does all of his sourcing within uh, 40 miles of each of his sites. So each of his chefs that runs these um, catering units has to think about the food system within their space. They have a zero waste kind of uh, approach as well. And so everything's used and, and he really pushes that and asks those questions. Like he was telling me the other day that he was going to their coffee supplier and asking, what are the things that you don't send me? And he, and, and the coffee supply says, no, I send you everything. And then he said, no, is there anything that's left over from the process of you getting the beans and, you know, and then they found out that the coffee husks were being left. So then he said, well, send me the coffee husks and I'll see what I can do with them. 
And so he was talking about using them in marinades and getting super creative around the way that he did that. And, and what I love is that kind of challenge, that questioning, that drive. Um, but what I love is that that's not just at a fine dining restaurant with, you know, a hundred covers. This is, he's doing it where he's, you know, multiple sites feeding, you know, I think 2 million meals or something. Um, and, and, and really doing that at scale at universities, at government departments, at corporate, um, venues, and then really trying to, to change that system. And obviously there's a, there's a challenge. It costs more, but people are willing to even think about their procurement and everything to get this, uh, kind of approach. And so I, I find chefs like that, that are driving forward, um, the change on so many levels. There's so many um, chefs out there that are also really sort of championing plant-based ingredients in such a way to elevate them and, and, and think about that. And why that's important um, is just because for so long, we haven't really focused on plant-based ingredients. We're focused more on animal-based proteins. Um, and so chefs really driving that forward in markets and making things more uh, getting more creative with, with, with plants, I think is really important and helps in the diversity of our diets and the shifts that, that need to happen in many parts of the world. And so seeing, seeing people thinking about that, thinking about how to do that, whether that be like, I know, um, Tom Hunt's a friend of mine who, you know, writes for the guardian and, and, and is active in kind of on social media, really driving that, right through to someone like Chantelle Nicholson, who's, you know, just opening her, her new restaurant in, in London this week, but has really championed, um, you know, plant-based uh, menus and really driven that. She, she, for many years, has been running a restaurant in, um, uh, in Covent Garden that has both a, a traditional tasting menu and then a plant-based tasting menu and trying to really work through how do you communicate, how do you do menu design, how do you do dishes in such a way, and how do you work out the business models around both? Because the plant-based menu, the ingredients cost less, but the labor was more. The, the, the more traditional menu, the ingredients cost more, but the labor was less. And so how do you work that out and how do you create value and create those shifts to happen um, whilst doing both in parallel? And, and I think there's a lot of that kind of experimentation um, and other chefs that have been involved in really um, thinking about, you know, the changes in 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 uh, different accessible products and different cafes and all of these kinds of things. There's there's so many stories, um, Danny. <laughs> it's it's really it, it is very exciting, and I love the yeah the diversity of um, in tackling this yeah problems that can seem insurmountable but when you start breaking them down and creating your own change then yeah it does make a difference um so if people want to link in with what you're doing paul what could they do yeah so i mean the way we kind of work is the framework and and one of the chefs who was really involved in the beginning arthur potts dawson um and and he he was at river cafe a bunch of others and he he you know when he when people ask him he often says read the manifesto. It's, it's an action plan. And he says, you know, if you can't pick that up as a chef and then come up with five things that you can do, then there's a challenge. Um, and so I think, you know, picking up the manifesto and having a look at it, um, where if you go to chefmanifesto.com, you'll find it there. We've got it in uh, a number of languages as well. Um, but have a look at it. 
um, sign up. We have a newsletter that you then get once a month. We don't overly spam you, um, but it basically has some of these stories, some of these um, activities. We also then try and break down the reports that are coming out globally, the science, the data that's happening at the global level and share that with chefs. Um, we're on Instagram as well um, at Chef's Manifesto. And, you know, we're using those platforms to really share um, stories. And we'd love to hear what you're doing. Um, and I think, Danny, one of the things where I'm super excited about is meeting new chefs, hearing about what they're doing and really showcasing that. Because what you find is in a global network, people learn across cultures and sometimes things that might just be seem like normal here. When you go to another part of the world, they're like revolutionary and so I think that sharing is really critical. So um, check that out, join us. Um, we have events that are happening around the world in different points, online and, and, in, and, and physical. We have a big event in London um, in June. Um, so if you're in London, let me know. Um, and uh, yeah, that's probably the best. Love it. Um, so great to dip into your world and come out with some great ideas for action. I absolutely love it. Paul, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Danny. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This is-